0: With Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP,
1: and welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg, and Bill Newman is off today. Hello, Dan Torres. Hello, Buzz. So uh, we expect Representative Mindy Dam. She might be on her way to the State House, um, so I she isn't here. But I think.
2: Um, Let's talk a little bit. Oh, what do we talk? Oh, yes. Let's talk about
1: what I was thinking about when I woke up this morning. I had some godforsaken hour. It is the threats to what we think of as uh, those democratic uh, republics that uh, we all strive to have the world replicate. Uh, one of which is the Ukraine. Um, that democracy, quote unquote, representative democracy, is embroiled in a horrific unprovoked war that threatens its very existence, that threatens its population. Israel is teetering on the verge of what many people are calling a uh, dictatorship, that the, independent, the notion of an independent judiciary to ensure that um, power doesn't become absolute and corrupted power um, is threatened in Israel. Here in this country, uh, we have a Supreme Court that is Uh, sort of taking over the role of his legislature in adopting ideological and philosophical policies, not as a matter of law, but as a matter of preference. Um, And uh, even the rulings of that Supreme Court, uh, the state of Alabama, which uh, seceded from the Union in 1861 um, and uh, was the original, Montgomery was the original headquarters of the Confederacy, uh, Alabama, despite the fact that the Supreme Court ordered it not to do so, has uh, done uh, drawn redistricting lines in order to ensure that of its seven seats in Congress in the House of Representatives, um, that uh, o- only one will be coming from a district which is uh, has a majority black population, even mm. though the population generally is far greater than one in seven. Right. Democracies are under siege. You have been dealing with Brazil and you were talking about the fact that Brazil at least took some efforts when somebody tried to steal an election in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Could you remind us about that?
2: Yeah, So we talked about this very briefly uh, recently that the Brazilian Supreme uh, Brazilian Electoral Court, the the highest court um, essentially made uh, the former president of Brazil ineligible to run for eight years. That's their electoral. They have certain rules and laws, and it came down to him essentially uh, saying that the the vote count would be uh, illegitimate. That's what his claims were before their recent election, and he did that. And there's a consequence to lying about it in Brazilian electoral laws. uh, If you are making claims without evidence, without proof, just saying it because you believe it to be true. They will hold you to account for it, and so um, yeah, it's a different set of rules, and so that's what happened to Bolsonaro, who is, I guess, a a acolyte of of I guess Donald Trump and the sort of more conservative—I uh, don't know what to call it—but a conservative populist, populist uh, revolutionary kind of view of sort of uh, bringing instilling Christian values, reactionary, yeah. <laughs> However you want to define it. but And, and
1: that is an electoral court. Brazil actually yes, has an electoral, an electoral court. court. We yeah. have a
2: federal elections commission, yeah.
1: which many people but, say is just so
2: but, weak. But it's so weak, and there it's not. And the, I think the big difference is the United States, anybody can make any claim you want, and it's protected under free speech. But we are now entering a phase where you know things that are said and believed aren't necessarily tied to reality and we don't know where that experiment will end and because if i want to believe that you know the election was fraudulent in 2020 here in the united states what could you ever do to convince me otherwise if i want to believe it to be true how can you stop me or and you know and i'll spread that to millions of people
1: well the latter part of what you said i completely agree with and I don't mean to lawyer you. But now, I'm lawyer, going to lawyer me. You, lawyer me. And I enjoy the beginning that was- of what you said is you could say anything you want, and it's protected by free speech. Sure. But in fact, if what you say is inducing a crowd to commit violence, mm. there's a crime. If what you say can uh, can be shown to be a conspiracy to, for example, uh, move boxes around uh, full of classified documents uh, <laughs> just after you've received a subpoena. To produce those documents and you engage in a conspiracy verbally instructing other people who call you boss to move those and to sweep a server so that there's no evidence of it that's not free speech mm. you can say it but yeah. obviously what
2: there are what, consequences to the free speech
1: yeah you know you can't pry fire in a theater there are limited limits to free speech
2: here's my counter to that and I am NOT a lawyer the person we're talking about, Donald Trump, but other people like him too, they know the line not to cross where you would be easily convicted of inciting a mob to commit violence. They're very He's very clever in stepping on the line, insinuating that you need to go out and do something for me, but never directly instructing it. And I've noticed this, about in my opinion, of what he does uh, specifically around, you know, what he says is our political enemies, the Democrats, the Marxists, and all of that. But he never directly instructs somebody to do that. But he's always willing to go up to that line, Buzz. And I wonder how the courts and the law handle something like that because it's never overt. It's never direct
1: well, again, uh, in my view,
2: in my view, at least. never say never. ok? And
1: uh, I think, Dan, we're about to see how the courts, uh, way too slow way too ineffective in so many different ways they've even allowed him to get th- to remain on the podium so that he is a uh, contender for the, the presidency once again but we're we're seeing the special counsel Jack Smith uh, the department of Justice um, bring uh, enough evidence to grand juries to result in indictments
2: to challenge exactly
1: how whether or not he walked over that line, right?
2: right? Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and I guess you know he will have a defense of it. Um, even if he is convicted, though, uh, of anything, he can still win the nomination. So he would be the nominee of a party under conviction. If his sentencing happens before or after November, who knows? I am um, technically he could win. Let's say in theory, he could win if he captures the Republican Party nomination. And then it's into unknown territory of can he pardon himself? If he is elected president, we would have to wait till January. Uh, how would that work? I mean, this is unknown uh, territory here, right, Buzz? I, January I knew the 25. In, of 2025. I mean, he, January 20th, 2025. It's uncertain of, of what would happen if there is a conviction and he gets elected president. Um, but I did want to ask you, since you mentioned Israel, um, I mean, from from my reading of the situation, and I'm not an expert on this, but it seems like the uh, parliament and the prime minister have essentially fought off the one remaining political challenge to their power and authority, and that is the Supreme Court of Israel. Um, and, you know, it makes me think of America because we have this thing, and you've talked to me about this, the sort of separation of powers, right? There's the, the three branches of government that separate we talk about. Equal. Separate but equal. And in, in, in what happens to a democracy when it's no longer separate but equal? I think it's it, no longer a democracy. Democracy, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, mean
1: it's a, you know, it's we all know this from civics class in the fourth grade, right? That mm-hmm. we have three separate but equal branches. The legislature makes the law. That law is implemented or enforced by an executive branch which executes the laws that are supposed to be made by Congress. And then we have uh, the interpretation of whether those two branches are acting lawfully being done by an independent third-party branch, which is the judicial branch. Um, right. And once you strip that branch of the power to what we call judicial review in this country, to review the uh, legitimacy, the constitutionality of what's being done by the other two branches... I don't know how we call it a democracy.
2: Well, then this is another question for you here, uh, talking bringing it back to the United States. Um, you mentioned Alabama not following a Supreme Court. Uh, open defiance. Open defiance of a Supreme Court, essentially, order, a ru- uh, ruling to say, no, you must redraw your map. Yep. You must have at least two districts, right? Uh, basically. And they're refusing to follow through. Then the question by, by the way, they redrew the exact same map which the Supreme Court
1: found unconstitutional.
2: But then the question is what authority can the Supreme Court exert over the state of Alabama to say, no, your maps are wrong? Right. I don't know. I mean, that that gets into a question of the executive branch, right? The executive branch would have to be the enforcement mechanism of that?
1: It does. We used to joke that, well, a judge has a gavel, but other than that, judges sit on a bench with robes on, right? Silly little costumes that they wear, and they have no real physical power. They don't have the guns. Mm -hmm. You know, the executive branch has the guns. Mm -hmm. They don't have the budget. Mm -hmm. Congress has the budget, or state legislature has the budget in the case of a state uh, government. But it's the same model, and, and so they have to rely on the good faith of the other branches. Well, um, the other branches have not been demonstrating good faith. Um, not when Mitch McConnell refused to uh, allow a vote on a nominee by the executive uh, for the Supreme Court, not when um, nobody is willing to take a look at whether or not a state can violate, openly violate, refuse to implement uh, the order of the highest court in the land. It's really dangerous. We're we're yeah. in, we're perilously close. We are teetering on the brink of something that none of us want to really say out loud. Yeah, but well, it's you know what we what saw it that? in Europe. We've yeah. seen it over and over and over again throughout human history. That, um, you know. I mean, what did Lincoln say? We're now engaged in a great civil war testing, whether that nation or any other nation so
2: conceived yeah. can long endure. I'm yeah. not
1: sure if we're going to endure.
2: Yeah, that is that is a, a so big great. question. I feel like that we haven't really tackled because I think it would get a little too depressing for us to say out loud what we're actually feeling inside. But I think at some point we will have to have this conversation between now and the election of, of in November in 2024, it's like, this is only going to grow. And people can turn this off. But you can't ignore it. If you live in the United States of America, you just can't, you can't put your head in the sand. And, uh, and think like, hey, I am just gonna go do my job and ignore what else is happening throughout the country. Because at some point, you will be impacted by this, your family in some way will be impacted by this sort of lack of legitimacy of the Supreme Court and denying their actual authority. I think ultimately the Supreme Court and the executive branch will have to work something out with Alabama and force them to redraw their maps. That, or as I told you off-air, they'll have to essentially uh, remove one of the six— a uh, republican congressman or and say I'm sorry you're you're no longer uh have the vested authority to to be in congress or vote or something like that something that would strip away their right until they draw a map that the supreme court has judged would be fair and equitable according to their ruling. I mean, this is the only enforcement you can have is to, is to essentially strip them away of having a, a Congress uh, representative until a new map is drawn. I don't know what else to tell you. That That's the solution.
1: Well, I think Dan, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think that, um, uh, well, I guess what I really want to say is yeah. I wish that we had a Supreme Court. You would think that the Supreme Court of the United States was at least uh, in in uh, appreciation of the importance of not allowing any entity, especially one of the several states, to completely ignore an order of the court. You would think it would have enough uh, sort of commitment to its own legitimacy and jurisdiction that it would uh, do anything possible to stop that from, from continuing. But this court... Um, it has it's proven itself to be so weak, it can't even enforce whether or not basic bare ethical requirements of every judge in every jurisdiction, in every civilized society, is is going to be respected when it allows one of its justices' wives to be one of the principals in something that it it entertains, it considers on the bench. That's really scary. I'm not sure that that Supreme Court is going to stand up at, to Alabama mm. because... Six of its members continue to do something that's antithetical to my idea of what constitutional principles are.
2: That actually brings up a question for you, Buzz. Who gets to write the ethics rules for the Supreme Court?
1: Is that Congress?
2: The Supreme Court does. Yeah,
1: I think Congress has a has the power to do it. Okay. Kevin McCarthy is not going to make that happen. Right. Right.
2: But in theory, the Congress could pass laws that would force every justice of the Supreme Court to declare. Uh, any gifts, any gains, anything like that across all nine, and they would have to be reported every year or something like this, Never right?
1: having looked yeah. at the issue, I don't want to say a definitive yes, but yeah. my instinct is, yeah, Congress could do that. Um, okay. But, yeah, I mean, it is the Supreme Court, the Supremacy Clause. It's the Supreme Court of the land, and and those nine justices and the, and the chief among them who is uh, nominated and confirmed in that role as chief Justice um, you would say, uh, it, it astonishes me you know it is it aston- we were talking earlier yeah. about a case I was involved in is just as a lawyer and I had to recuse myself. Judges all the time are asked to recuse themselves in state and federal courts and generally do if there's even an argument. I, I remember, George Hare, who was a superior court judge, one of my first cases forty five years ago. I, I watched. There was a bank robbery. Mm. It was maybe thirty eight years ago. I can tell you, nineteen eighty four. I was involved. I was born. In, yep, there you go. And um, what happened is it was Greenfield's, not Greenfield Savings. It was Greenfield. I'm going to say Greenfield Savings. I don't think it was, but it was one of those. Um, uh, and Judge Hare arraigned the person and said, I'm recusing myself from this case. will have to be assigned to another judge because I'm a depositor in that bank. And <laughs> he disclosed, it was one of four banks that he uses, local banks that he used okay. at the time. But he felt that the ethics required that he recuse himself because it could be argued. It's an appearance of conflict. It's not an actual conflict. Yeah. It's just an appearance that he might tend to protect the bank more because the oh, the depositor see. in that oh, bank. Oh, I got you. Okay. And then it, theoretically it could have been some of his money that was stolen. Oh, by I the see. Bank, Robert. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. I, that wasn't very clear when it was, when what, I initially heard that, but now I understand yeah. why the, why he, he would even well, go what there. What I'm that's...
1: saying is that usually judges are so, um, uh, protective, uh, to avoid the appearance of conflict and, for lawyers, for those who don't know, you know, there's three types of conflicts. There's an actual conflict. Um, that is, uh, my wife is involved in the case mm-hmm. that's before me. Mm-hmm. I recuse myself. Mm-hmm. There's a potential conflict. Oh, my wife is involved in a collateral issue, but it could become pertinent to this case. I will recuse myself. Mm-hmm. Or there's the appearance of conflict. Yeah, this could shatter the confidence of the public. Yeah, in our institution, the courts. Right every district court judge, probate court judge, you know, bankruptcy judge every and throughout the federal system, every judge is required to adhere to that ethical uh set of rules and recuse themselves except for nine judges.
2: I mean, they the Supreme Court of the yeah. United States. Well, the Supreme Court has been uh, slowly eroding a lot of the confidence Confidence of our elections i mean it's it's it had been a slow process for many decades but i think the 2010 citizens united getting rid of uh, mccain feingold um uh, restrictions on you know creating these super packs and unlimited amount of money no disclosures and a bunch of that i, I think they don't realize that while they're protecting the eliminating row uh, eliminating yeah
1: which, which 78% of the population thinks you're Yeah I,
2: I mean at a certain point you are now an overt oligarchy uh, in, in the country and um yeah you can't even argue that you are a democracy anymore, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, a republic, or any of these arguments people make, which I think is ridiculous, but... um Ridiculous how? I, I, mean, I mean, I'm mean, i just saying... Actually, it, we have to take a break, yeah, we but do. I,
1: I'm not sure that it's so ridiculous anymore. I mean, I, I think we're at least on the pre- precipice.
2: Okay, here's what I want to say. You're, you're right, we're on the precipice, but this has been long brewing even before 2016, and I think if we go back to well, since I've been 18 years old back in college, 2002, okay? This goes back to the Bush administration, the Iraq war, the erosion of legitimacy, trust, and lies really, to me, really accelerated in Iraq, I mean, it, from that war. I don't want to That's mention name. any names, but the initials are
1: Ronald Reagan. Oh, okay. There you go. We're going to take a break. We're going to be right back.
0: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley.
3: It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Miss Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside,
4: get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read lessons in chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice and you won't be able to put it down. Except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store.
5: THE DAILY HAMPSHIRE GAZETTE, THE PIONEER VALLEY'S NEWSPAPER COVERING HOLYOKE TO DEERFIELD AND BELCHERTOWN TO THE HILLTOWNS, WAS AWARDED NEW ENGLAND NEWSPAPER OF THE YEAR FOR THEIR LOCAL NEWS COVERAGE. HOME DELIVERED SIX DAYS A WEEK AND ONLINE 24-7. TRY THEIR DIGITAL ONLY SUBSCRIPTION OPTIONS AND STAY CONNECTED WITH YOUR COMMUNITY WHEREVER YOU ARE. PICK UP A COPY ON NEWSSTANDS, SUBSCRIBE OR VISIT GAZETTENET.COM. THE DAILY HAMPSHIRE GAZETTE, COVERING THE PIONEER VALLEY SINCE 1786.
6: Sidewalk sales,
3: downtown Northampton.
5: Sidewalk sales, walk away with? A shirt, a skirt. Walk away with a bargain. Sidewalk sales, now in downtown Northampton.
0: When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. So
1: it uh, it is Friday. Our listeners want nothing more than to feel really good heading into the weekend. But instead, Dan Torres, you're bringing ev- everybody down, talking about the demise of democracy, uh, despite
2: my wishes. Oh, Buzz, I, I can't help it. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think we're, we're entering a... a I think we're dangerous. there. I think we're there? Okay. I mean, I don't know if we've passed that precipice. I still think the Republican Party are fighting within themselves to define what the party will be. And I think there is a struggle among more moderate uh, Republicans for control of the party, even though they lack the the base, the support, but they still have the money. And they think they can maybe finagle out um, a win within the Republican Party if Donald Trump does not win uh, in, in November of next year. So I think there's still an internal struggle there. Um look, democracy is messy. I've never seen uh us reach this point where we're questioning Supreme Court decisions like you were talking about in Alabama or the legitimacy question. I've this this hasn't come up uh at least not in any books that I've read. What what
1: is the percentage is over a third. I think it's mm-hmm. something like 37% of uh, uh identified voters all Republicans believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Well, that's, that's over a third of American citizens. Don't believe our electoral system works. Yeah. And well, and and I'm just going to add to that. There's a whole bunch of us, including myself, who think it's time to get rid of the electoral college, because despite the popular vote, we keep on several occasions, we elect people who didn't win the popular vote, who represent only a minority view in this country. So, uh, I'm not sure if the whole. Only sort of a
2: constitutional amendment could change that, and I don't think we have no, enough we don't. political. I'm just uh, uh, the question
1: is: Are we truly a democracy? If most people don't agree with who our leaders are, how the processes work, the authority of the court, but well, uh, we could have
2: a real debate about that because but we're having one right now. Uh, oh, are we? Okay. Well, I mean, then, <laughs> then the question. I mean, then the question is. Uh, what how does the actual government work then the then the real debate is okay the will of the people and the majority is obviously uh, restricted in the way the constitution and the framers created it right they wanted a, a congress to be the representative will of the majority of people why, that's why they are uh, reelected every 2 years right it gives them that it gives them that authority um, then you have the Senate, which is essentially a, a a body that is every six years, but it is this counter-majoritarian uh, element. And then you have uh, the presidency as well, um, which they didn't want to be elected directly. That's why they created the the Electoral College, right? They didn't want it to be a direct... Uh, interest. Well, I'll give you another example. The Senate, the way it was originally voted, it was state legislatures got to vote it until what was it? The Sixteenth uh, Amendment. There was an amendment to the Constitution that gave people the direct right to vote for the Senate. I mean, I think the idea of the framers isn't to just give the majority will full control over the country. I think their their institution, their their intuition is you have to. Control that and manage that will of the majority. Otherwise, it would destroy this goes back to the articles of confederation when there wasn't a restraint on majority power uh, The country just stopped functioning normally there has to be a Division within uh, the majority will so just to make sure we know what direction we're going but you're right I think if if a political party has lost the last 7 out of 8 popular elections it 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 current it, it is eroding the trust that is happening uh, at the executive branch. I mean I think it's only George W Bush in 2004 is the last time a Republican won both the electoral college and the popular vote. So it is a problem. I agree with you. I just and don't in see 2001 a he didn't win the popular vote. I yeah, I, that's true. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. You want I, to take a break? I,
1: I think yeah. it's a, look, it's really important. I, I I do want to just summarize but before summarize. we take a break cuz Uh, Everything you said is astute. Uh, You are a student of history, and and I can't disagree with it, but here's the bottom line. The bottom line where we started, if we just circle back to Israel, for example, Mm. it is a minority that forms the coalition, Mm -hmm. several minority um, of the population. We sort of lock arms and form a majority for purposes of a coalition that can pass something like a law that limits the power of the Supreme Court to prevent corruption in government that allows a, you know, a the prime minister or a president of mm-hmm. Israel to sort of thwart the law um, to their own benefit. It, that's frightening. Here in the United States, we keep having these headlines. I don't trust polling, but overwhelming support for uh, women to have the right to make choices over right. their own reproductive system. And yet, a small minority yeah. can uh, position itself to make the decisions that the majority doesn't like. You can call that representative
2: democracy, but you know it's only not in a last. name
1: because it's not representative and it's not democracy.
2: I I, I mean I don't disagree. I think it's ultimately going to become incumbent on on this majority to create a new coalition that exerts their will over the political system. And I think we're so divided. There's such complexity in the way voters come out. You're right. I mean, there's there's no legitimacy to a minority enacting its will over the majority. I mean, that's, that's oligarchy. Called, that's called tyranny.
1: Okay. But um, Dan Torres. Uh, we'll have this debate another time, I guess. Yeah. How about about 20 other times? Because <laughs> it's, uh, it's not going to go well, away. Okay. The problem is not going to go away soon. But I'll tell you what is going to be coming, which is Max Page, the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, will be joining us. Uh, and that is always a treat for all of us. We'll be
0: right back with Max. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Massachusetts State Senate passed a $513 million supplemental budget for fiscal year 2023. The legislation funds flexible assistance for farms throughout the Commonwealth, impacted by recent severe weather events. Senator Joe Comerford says she is tremendously grateful the Senate is standing with farmers with $20 million in funding. Senate President Karen Spilka spoke about the need to help farmers. We have a responsibility to support the communities that grow the food, drive the agricultural economy of our state. Cumberford says that the public funds will go out as direct grants. The driver of a car that hit a motorcyclist, killing the driver and injuring the passenger in 2021, pleaded guilty yesterday to a single charge of negligent operation of a motor vehicle. The crash, which took place May 15, 2021, on Route 9 in Belchertown near the Town line, claimed the life of Wales resident Niles Robbins, who was operating a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. A passenger on the motorcycle sustained non-life-threatening injuries. State police investigators later determined that Alexander Sakin of East Longmeadow was at fault for the crash. Sakin was sentenced to three years of probation. And the Route 2 detour around Factory Hollow between Greenfield and Gill has changed paths. The detour has been redirected from Adams Road to the French King Highway onto Silver Street, then back to Route 91 north of the Bernardston exit. The detour will be in place long term after a recent flooding has eroded the land between the section of Route 2.
8: Mostly sunny today, warm and humid, a high of 90 to 94, a heat advisory in effect today. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temps in the 80s, an overnight low of 66 to 72. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms likely, a high of 84 to 88. Mostly sunny, low humidity, and a high in the low 80s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
7: This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media.
9: Yo soy Johan Rashi con la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media. El expresidente Donald Trump enfrenta acusaciones de que él y sus ayudantes le pidieron a un miembro del personal que borrara las imágenes de la cámara en su propiedad de Florida en un esfuerzo por obstruir las investigaciones de documentos clasificados. Las alegaciones se hicieron el jueves en una acusación actualizada del gran jurado que agrega nuevos cargos contra Trump y agrega otro acusado al caso. Un portavoz de Trump desestimó los nuevos cargos como nada más que un continuo intento desesperado y agitado por parte de la administración Biden de hostigar al presidente Trump y a quienes lo rodean e influir en la carrera presidencial de 2024. Trump y el ayuda de cámara Walt Nauta fueron acusados el mes pasado por el fiscal especial del departamento de justicia Jack Smith en una acusación de 38 cargos por conspirar para ocultar documentos clasificados en su propiedad de Florida, Mar-a-Lago, de los investigadores del gobierno que exigían que se los devolvieran. Ambos hombres se han declarado inocentes. En noticias relacionadas, los abogados de Donald Trump se reunieron el jueves con miembros del equipo del fiscal especial Jack Smith antes de una posible acusación por los esfuerzos del expresidente para anular los resultados de las elecciones de 2020, según una persona familiarizada con el asunto. No quedó claro de inmediato qué se discutió en la reunión, aunque se produjo una reunión similar con los abogados en los días previos a que Trump fuera acusado el mes pasado por cargos de retención ilegal de documentos clasificados. Trump, el favorito. En las primarias presidenciales republicanas de 2024, fue informado a principios de este mes por la oficina de Smith que era objeto de la investigación del Departamento de Justicia, lo que sugiere que pronto podría presentarse una acusación. Yo soy Johan Rashí Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
7: This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
1: You know, there's so much about um, being a co-host of uh, Talk to Talk that I find uh, I'm just lucky to be here in the studio. But uh, uh, every single Friday when we get to talk to uh, Massachusetts Teachers Association president, Max Page, I uh, am reminded of how lucky I am. I uh, still get to learn, even at my advancing age, from Max Page uh, about things which I really care deeply about and education is one of them. Max, thanks for joining us again on Friday.
10: Glad to be here, Buzz. Good morning.
1: Good morning. So what has been demanding your attention recently?
10: Well, there's a a lot on the plate and especially as I'm afraid to say, it's about to be August, which means we're starting to look seriously in plans for the coming year. And And the Massachusetts Teachers Association has a lot of big plans here, including, um advancing high quality debt free public higher education and this was some this has obviously been a priority of mine i teach at umass amherst I, my father taught there i you know grew up on that campus and it's been a centerpiece of the of the work that i've been doing with the with the mta but it's more important than ever in the wake of the supreme court decisions and it's important to note that there were two successive Supreme Court decisions. One them that we're talking most about is, of course, saying that you can no longer use race as a criteria in admissions. That was decided on a Thursday. And then the next day, uh, the court also threw out the, the Biden administration's very important student debt cancellation initiative, which would take some of the huge burden of student debt off of our young people. So those two together have really ratcheted up um, the, the the you know the energy the, or the, the pressure I think the good pressure on all of us in Massachusetts to do right because we cannot expect this Congress in DC Washington DC to do right but and we really need to lead once again in Massachusetts by uh, you know, creating a universal high quality debt-free public higher education system and that's something where we're, we're going to work on and I'll, I'll just give a preview on September 18th is, a, is the hearing at which this cherish act, which is a blueprint for high-quality, debt-free public higher education, that's the date that will be heard in the state house in the largest auditorium in the state house, with Senator Joe Comerford presiding, as she is the co-chair of the the um, the joint committee on higher education. So that's a real focal point for our work in the coming weeks.
1: I think Mindy Dom, representative from
10: the Hampshire Third, is also on that committee. He is also absolutely, and also a sponsor of this CHERISH Act.
1: Yeah, Uh, it's so important. So important, people. I'm so glad that you keep bringing it to our attention. I hope that listeners can uh, let their legislators know how important it is to pass the CHERISH Act. And uh, those are going to be. I I am. I assume you'll be testifying at those hearings, right?
10: Absolutely. Yep. We're going to make that a very big day, hoping to get a lot of both K12 and higher ed members in in attendance. That's really great.
1: So um, in terms of higher education, you're talking about public higher education. You're talking about not just the University of Massachusetts system with its uh, various campuses. You're also talking about the community college campuses that are here in Massachusetts.
10: Absolutely. So, you know, and I think, Buzz, you as a former faculty member at Greenfield Community College, I believe, um, you know, you recognize and I'd love to hear, actually, I think listeners would love to hear, some of your experiences because this conversation that we've had um, in this past summer and, and before about these affirmative action decisions um, are of course very important about who gets to get into, you know, selective colleges like Harvard or the University of North Carolina and, and other schools. But they also are a little bit infuriating to me because of the all the public and private college students in in the United States of America, Almost half attend our public community colleges. Only a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of students actually go to these highly selective colleges. Now, I understand they they play an outsized role, and they, because of the way this world works, they uh, channel people uh, more likely to the CEO, corner offices and Supreme Court, the Supreme Court bench, and so on. But for the vast majority of young people, the action is really in the community colleges and then right after that, the state universities and the kind of flagship campuses in any, in any given state. That's where the real action is. And we are still failing miserably in bringing in and graduating sufficient um, you know, young people of all races and all incomes, although the community colleges are at the forefront and do a far better job. I don't know. I would love to hear your experience, actually, and what you saw as, as a professor at, at Greenfield.
1: My experience was life-changing for me. I, uh, you know, I had practiced law for uh, whatever it was, uh, I think um, 20 years before I was an adjunct for three years teaching courses on law and government, political science, and uh, uh, civil liberties and uh, criminology at uh, Greenfield Community College. And my first um, six semesters, I just taught one course because I would get there at eight o'clock in the morning on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and then go to court afterwards. And I was still a full-time uh, lawyer. When I became a full-time faculty member in, uh, I think it was 2001, for 17 years at Greenfield Community College. And I uh, I was uh, working four days a week as community college, and then I was doing Guantanamo and traveling and things like that at the same time. And it was keeping me hopeful. The open enrollment colleges, like community colleges here in Massachusetts, you know, they are called community colleges because of their commitment to diversity, um not just affirmative action in some clinical sort of idea. It was really, If you wanted to go to college, you might have to take a couple of remedial courses. You might have to just uh, demonstrate that you can develop the study skills necessary for college. But it is an affordable, high-quality education. My colleagues were... It was a truly committed uh, core of faculty members that that I was able to be shoulder-to-shoulder with. Um, And the students, I mean... By accident of birth, they weren't at at Oxford. Some of them, some of them came in and they needed remedial help. They came in with like tenth grade writing skills or reading skills, and and they needed help. Others came in, you know, at a par with somebody who's going to Harvard. They just, um, but all of them wanted nothing more than what we promised them: the American dream. If you work hard, uh, if you're given the opportunity, there are doors that are going to open for you to be able to support a family, support yourself continue learning, uh, be rewarded um, in a sort of satisfaction way with a career. I am such a believer in the community college system, and I saw it firsthand, student after student after student. I saw still to this day, I see so many student success stories. They, community colleges fulfill dreams, Max. Yeah. And and I, I'm sure you see so many students, you know, at, at UMass who went to a community college. Um, actually, we have this, I will mention him by name because he's sitting here on my left. Dylan Hatch uh, went to um, a community college. And uh, as a dual enrollment student, he was a precocious high schooler who was able to take college courses at community college at a, an affordable rate. And then uh, he walked into UMass with a 4.0 QM. And he's walking out and on his way to get his master's with a 4.0 cum from UMass. He, the community college has set him up for what is now going to be graduate level uh, work. And I have every belief that he's going to be as successful in his work life as he was in his academic career. And he is a purely perfect example of what the community college system
10: gives us. That's great. You know, what you've lifted up, Buzz, is... Something I think we sometimes forget is that community colleges have, in in many ways, the the broadest um, charge and they are there for um, young people to get a two year degree. They're there for people to return to college who never went to college, but now want to, need to. They are there to tr- then help people get from a two-year degree to a four-year degree. That's sort of the, sort of the, the gateway into college, nearby. That's the idea. Is that it's supposed to be nearby to people, so they might have families or work, and then can go on from a two-year to a four-year degree. There are also places for certificate training and um, you know short-term um, vocational training that is needed. And then finally, and I'm gonna lift this up because I think we often forget it since so much of the discussion is purely about, you know, job career, which of course is very important, but it's also community colleges are also places for people to pursue vocations and avocations that they, they, they're open, as you said. I think it's really important you sort of went through it quickly. You said they're open enrollment. They, community colleges, the doors are open. There is not a barrier. To to go in, or there are the lowest barriers of all our um, public colleges and universities and certainly private universities, and they are there also people taking individual courses later on in life. And that is, I think what we all talk about, we say this phrase lifelong learning. Well, community colleges are there to provide that opportunity for both 18 year olds, but also 85 year olds um, in their community to learn and and contribute back back and that's why it's such um, a shame that we so underfund them. And so it's, I, I know you said, and you're no doubt, you're, you're. there's enormous commitment. I see that in our members all the time. And they get paid far less than they deserve. Um, there's far more exploitation of adjuncts. It works sometimes for a lawyer like you to be able to teach um, occasional courses. Yeah, I was able but there to. are many adjuncts who are trying to make a full living off of that and you know that that's really would be really difficult so it's really difficult well, and I, I just want
1: to I, I would just want to say max i have as a result of those years teaching at community college i have such a profound um i was going to say sense of respect but it's really gratitude to people like you max page and your colleagues in the mass teachers association people who have committed themselves to educate <laughs> there's a joke that i learned when i first started teaching i if I can remember it, if my fading memory can remember it, it goes something like this. Those who teach in secondary schools, elementary and secondary schools, they do it because they love the kids. Those who teach at community college, they do it because they love to teach. Those who teach at a four-year institution do it because they love their disciplines. And those who teach at Harvard and Yale do it because they love themselves. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: I,
4: but the truth
1: is... People that I experienced at community college, they love their disciplines and they love to teach. They, they have a passion for conveying, for bringing other people up to where they are in their skills and understanding of the world around them. And it is, um, that's what makes us all better. It lifts every boat in the harbor. It's um, uh, public higher education as opposed to private higher education I don't mean to demean private higher education there's a place for everything but public higher education I find people like you Max Page to be so committed to students it's it uh it's a moving experience to be among you
10: well thank you thank you Buzz it is such an important issue and this is the moment I really feel like the the stakes have been raised by the Supreme Court's actions, I think. W- or rather, let me put a metaphor different, differently, the, the curtain has been pulled aside. Like what we see um, at some of the selective institutions, the, the you know, the, the way they have, you know, the, you know, how they are still bastions of the very elite. And, you know, recent articles showing that, you know, um, the 0.1% get a huge advantage over a- admissions uh, it's almost like that's a qualification, a special qualification, like playing playing the violin wonderfully or being a, you know, um, a great pianist or something is to be very, very wealthy to, if you want to get into into Harvard. What we call and a leg- guess,
1: legacy admission, right?
10: Y- yes. Well, it's not even beyond legacy. It's just a wealth admission. You don't even have to be a legacy. If you just have a ton of money, it turns out you have two or three times more likely to get it, even with the same grades and scores as someone with. With a lot less money, and I guess what it, what it, it gives us an opportunity to say, if we are really serious about racial and economic equity in in higher education, we need to provide those pathways for the institutions that are dedicated to that mission. And that's not what the purpose, that is not the fundamental purpose of some of of Harvard. And it has its place, obviously, and it does you know, tremendous research and the like. But if we are trying to help young people who have been disadvantaged by race, by income, which often go together in this country, then you have to provide those pathways, not only into to, so that they're not burdened by debt, but also so they have as high a quality and it's, um, an experience as possible, so that's that's our plan for the coming year.
1: And we are going to continue our conversation with uh, MTA President Max Page, ever the educator, and I'm taking notes. We'll be
0: right back after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits.
5: Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial
0: care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP.
6: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
4: Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad.
6: River Valley Co-op, wild about local Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So, for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst.
5: You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost.
7: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at or call me at 586-7400.
5: WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: And we are back with Mass Teacher Association president and professor and historian, Max Page. Max, um, I heard about a governor's a council
10: for public higher education.
1: What is that all about?
10: It's actually for it's for higher education in general. Uh, in advance of and in, in expecting the Supreme Court decisions that came out at the end of June, Governor Healy created a, a council for representation in higher education and brought together leaders in both public and private higher education in Massachusetts to talk about how we as a state as the Commonwealth can respond to those decisions. And so there was an initial meeting in the afternoon of the decision by the Supreme Court. And then just the other day, we held a meeting. This is convened by the Secretary of Education, Patrick Tutwiler, and um, Noe, Noe Ortega, the Commissioner of Higher Education. And it was really kind of a beginning of a brainstorming session about how we can um, at, at, you know, maintain our commitment to diversity In higher education, and you will not be surprised that uh, based on what we were talking about earlier that my main message was, let's use the moment to really, um. Advance our public higher education system. There is new energy. In public higher ed, especially brought forward by our own uh, state senator, um, Joe Comerford, who is who's the leader of the higher education committee and the sponsor of the cherish act that we put together. But there's also just more um, investment from the state Senate president, Karen Spilka, who's made this a top priority. Um, certainly, th- th- we may find out that in the coming weeks the, the state budget that will include um, dramatically more funding for financial aid and investments in public higher education. But as we've talked about, it's just, let's keep this crystal clear that, that the action, the most college students in the United States are in public colleges. Something like close to seventy percent nationwide are in public colleges or universities. So we need to make sure that they are able to attend, and then also um, graduate without the burden of debt. And it shouldn't be a surprise. It is young people of color who bear have a higher debt loads um, because they come from less wealth because of decades and longer of cent of. Uh, Of structural racism so let's let's do what the public higher education system was meant to do which is allow anyone to go pursue their vocation um, and contribute without having to be burdened by uh, debt
1: I am someone who graduated from the University of Massachusetts um, and went to law school I had some debt I was able to afford you know my debt was like ten thousand dollars I was able to afford, you know, paying pennies every week, even with two young children, and after a certain amount of time, was able to extinguish it. It was a burden, but the burden that people walk away with now is just so much greater, and it is wrong, and it's short-sighted on our part. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but Max Page, I am always so grateful, and so grateful you're there in the trenches working for all of us in our future. Everybody else, thanks for joining us. Talk to talk.
0: Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo, Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP.
5: Brought to you by Business West, the vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West.
0: The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
8: My name is Silas Koff. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org.
0: WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station.
6: It's 10 o'clock. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Former President Trump isn't letting new charges in the classified documents case slow down his quest for another four years in the White House. He tells the John Fredericks radio show he will not end his presidential campaign, even if he's convicted or sentenced. As for those charges against him, CBS News legal contributor Jessica Levinson. Now what we have is allegedly an attempt to try and delete evidence of them concealing that information. A cover-up on top of a cover-up. Mr. Trump is scheduled to appear at a gathering of Republican presidential candidates in Des Moines tonight. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell is staying put despite recent health issues. A spokesperson says he will remain in his leadership post through the 2024 elections. Two days ago, he froze up for about 21 seconds, speaking to reporters. Yesterday, he was back at work urging lawmakers to pass a defense policy bill. A
11: good way to wrap up this session. This is real important for our country.
6: The legislation passed 86 to 11, putting the bill on a collision course with the Republican controlled House, which added provisions restricting abortion access. Another day, another hopeful piece of economic news. The Fed's preferred gauge shows inflation cooled in June to its lowest annual rate in more than two years. A lead economist at Oxford Economics says it's proof the main growth engine is still humming. The relentless heat wave that's blanketed the Southwest for weeks has spread east. Cities like New York and Philly face temperatures and humidity that'll make it feel like it's in the triple digits today. CBS's Jim Crusula says they're sweating it out in the steamy Midwest, too. Grin and Barrett. That's about all people who work outside can do. Jacob Schmitz and Jessica Torrenson work for a tree care company in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Stick to the shade as much as we can.
3: We did a little bit of an early start today. It helps a little, but eventually it's going to be that noon sun and you can't really escape it.
6: A medical breakthrough using guided artificial intelligence. Keith Thomas, a man paralyzed in a diving accident four years ago, was able to control his hand and arm and feel the sensation after he had a computer chip implanted in his brain. Chad Boughton directs the Neural Bypass Lab.
0: There's a saying that uh, neurons that fire together wire together. We think that's part of what's happening.
6: If you drive a Ford, heads up. WWJ's Jeff Gilbert.
8: 870,000 Ford F-150 is being recalled after nearly 300 complaints of electric parking brakes activating on their own. That's happened at least 19 times while the vehicle was being driven. Dow up 143.
6: This is CBS News.
0: Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit.
9: Viking, providing all-inclusive
12: voyages on rivers, oceans, and lakes around the world. Designed for curious travelers with interest in science, history, culture, and cuisine. Viking chairman Torsten Hagen often says, Viking offers experiences for the thinking person, with no children and no casinos on board. Learn more at viking.com. That's viking.com.
5: Yeah, I'm so stressed. Our business is growing. We've got people all over now. Ooma. What is that? Meditation? I'm recommending
4: the Uma cloud phone system with auto attendant and more than 50 features. Uma. Yep. Switching to Uma is a cinch. Just $24.95 per month per user, plus taxes and fees. Ooma. Now you're feeling it. Find small business calm at Uma.com slash radio. That's ooma.com
6: slash radio. What a day for Shohei. Some
8: clapping for Shohei, who goes to the opposite field.
7: For WHMB News, I'm Jess Tyler. The executive director of the Downtown Northampton Association is heading to Greenfield. Amy K. Lane, who has held the position for the past seven years, has accepted a position to direct Greenfield's economic development. K. Lane takes over the position next week following the retirement of M.J. Adams. K. Lane tells the Gazette the new position will utilize her passion for economic development and less so on logistics of planning events. Authorities are investigating whether lightning was the cause of a fire on the campus of American International College yesterday, prompting a quick response from Springfield fire crews. Calls came into Springfield fire around 5 p.m. about smoke coming from the roof of Corniotis Hall. Campus police did a walkthrough to ensure that no students, faculty, or staff were inside. Corniotis Hall houses AIC's nursing program and provides classroom space for additional health science courses. While there is significant damage to the building, AIC President Hubert Benitez says they are committed to taking all actions necessary to ensure that they provide students with continuity in their course of studies in the fall of 2023. Head Start is planning to reduce the number of openings for children by over 100 in order to preserve $3 million in federal funding. The community action Pioneer Valley submitted plans to lower their enrollment capacity from 438 to 311, in order to have a ratio of 15 children to two teachers for preschool and a ratio of 8 to 2 and 7 to 2 for infants and toddlers. The Office of Head Start notified community action in March that funding would be cut unless it achieved full enrollment by next spring.
8: Mostly sunny today, warm and humid, a high of 90 to 94, a heat advisory in effect today. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temps in the 80s, an overnight low of 66 to 72. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms likely, a high of 84 to 88. Mostly sunny, low humidity, and a high in the low 80s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off today, and uh, I am just so happy to be here in studio because uh, uh, we hear so much, we talk so much, uh, I have so many friends. And I'm embarrassed to say I have never been, I've been here a half a century and I've never made it out to Chester to see Chester Theater. And I'm going to, because here with us is Daniel Elihu Kramer, who is the, uh, I guess you are the artistic director. What what exactly is your title?
12: So actually, the wonderful thing I have to tell you is I currently have no title, which is uh, a new thing. For the past seven years, I was the producing artistic director of Chester Theater Company. Um, And I actually stepped down from that position last fall, and I'm back there as a guest director uh, this summer uh, and uh, wonderfully working on a beautiful show while other great friends uh, have taken on the task of running that beautiful theater.
1: We have Mr. Nobody, Daniel Elihu uh, Kramer, who is uh, uh, riding on the crest of all of his friends' work. That is exactly right. I have heard wonderful things about a production that you have going on right now. It's going to be going on from August 10th to August 20th called Circle Mirror Transformation.
12: What is that, Daniel? So I'll tell you a few things about it. Uh, First off, uh, this is a play with a lot of local ties. Uh, The playwright is a Pulitzer Prize winner by the name of Annie Baker who grew up in Amherst um, and whose mom is still there. Uh, and this is part of a trilogy of plays she wrote about a fictional town in Vermont called Shirley, Vermont, Uh, and uh, it is a town you will recognize in many ways uh, if you know Amherst, because it's sort of like if you took Amherst and Vermont and mixed them up, uh, you would get Shirley, Vermont. Um, So Chester Theatre Company, this is actually the third of the trilogy uh, that they've done. There are three plays that Annie Baker set there, uh, one was a play called Body Awareness, which is a play that takes place on the campus of the made-up Shirley State College. Uh, one is a play called The Aliens that I directed in 2018. That there was a lovely New Yorker article about, um, which is basically about two guys oh, hanging. I that. Yeah. yeah, it's about two guys hanging out behind a coffee shop, which is called the Green Sheep instead of, of course, Amherst's Black Sheep. Uh, and now we're completing the trilogy with Circle Mirror Transformation. This is a play that takes place at a community center in Shirley, Vermont, and we see a group of five people taking a creative drama class for adults, and we see them over the course of six weeks in this class. And the transformation? All kinds of transformations. You know, one of the beautiful things about Annie Baker's work is that she believes and then really proves the point that everybody's life is worth attention if we'll look carefully. And she's a playwright who's brilliant at offering us the chance to look carefully and see how funny people are and see that there's so much going on beneath the surface of the lives we see around us. So as I said, we see these five folks over the course of these weeks and we see big life changes going on, but they happen in the midst of our watching them try to do all kinds of um, pretty ridiculous looking theater exercises at times. So we'll see them do beautiful things where they might give a monologue as somebody else, right? Maybe one of them interviewed another and then they'll say like, if I were doing it with you, I'd say, hi. Hi. Uh, my name is Buzz, I've lived in the area for 50 years, I, right, et cetera, et cetera. But then other times we'll watch them lie there and try to count to 10 without interrupting each other. <laughs> um, and at first you go, is anything happening here? It's kind of funny and it's kind of weird and it's kind of interesting. It but sounds like co-hosting with Bill Newman. <laughs> see, there you go. You're ready. <laughs> um, but then over this course of the play, you start to see these enormous things going on in people's lives at the same time. So it's really exciting that way.
1: Well, let me ask you, Daniel, is it difficult to be involved after a long time as the uh, artistic director, producing artistic director, is it hard to not be involved from that perch? Is is it frustrating?
12: Uh, It absolutely isn't, as a matter of fact. Um, I'm finding that, you know, I've always directed a play there when I was running the theater, Uh, Each summer I would direct one play in the season, but your attention in that situation is always split, right? You're split between the work you want to be doing in the rehearsal room and the 10,000 other things you need to be thinking about and what's happening in another rehearsal room and what's happening in the performance on stage. And do I need to go over and introduce the show? Do I need to go chat with people? Do I need to make sure we have enough COVID tests stashed away somewhere? Do I, you know, et et cetera, et cetera, Administrative, administrative, administrative. Yeah. And some of it even artistic thinking about like, how's that other rehearsal going and let me go take a peek at what they're doing. Um, and because uh, James Barry and Tara Franklin, who are the folks who have taken on the role together, they're a couple who have worked for a long time at the theater who are now working together as co-producing artistic directors, because they understand this theater so well and because their spirit is so wonderful, I feel very freed to be focused in my room with these wonderful actors and this terrific On the creative script. side of stuff. Yeah, and really just be doing that.
1: Well, tell us about the theater, and, and I'm embarrassed to admit, I mean, I passed Chester on the way to Jacob's Pillow, and, you know, we, we, we love Southern Berkshire and we go to Tanglewood, and we uh, we go to Williamstown, and we go uh, to, to the Barrington Theater in, in Pittsfield, and love it. And for some reason, despite the fact people keep saying, go to Chester, it's the incredible railroad museum, and this theater, Um Tell us, tell us about the theater and why people should become more aware
12: of it. Sure. Well, first off, I know I'm supposed to tell you don't feel bad, but I'm going to tell you you should be completely ashamed of yourself. I'm ashamed
1: of myself. I am ashamed of myself.
12: Well, better yet, don't be ashamed of yourself. Come see a play. There we Um, go. Here's the amazing thing, and this is actually what the New York article from a few years ago really focused on: is that if you've driven through Chester, you know that's a tiny little town. There are maybe sixteen hundred people there. There are there's one restaurant for lunch, there's another and a bar for dinner. Um, there's, that, that's my rationalization right there. I thought it was a nothing burger. You know, and then you walk into the town hall because the theater actually produces its plays in the town hall, believe it or not. You walk into the town hall and suddenly you step into a theater and there are these amazing actors, professional actors, uh, often from New York, others who are in the area. Um and these beautiful plays. And I actually think that there's something particularly remarkable about feeling like you've gone to the middle of nowhere and then suddenly discovering that the whole world is happening in front of you on that stage. And I think there's a very particular magic to that experience that you actually can't get anywhere else I know. That just sounds so special.
1: When you say professional actors, how do actors come to be in? the chester theater so
12: all kinds of ways many of the roles are simply roles that are auditioned right i in the past now the folks who run it will go down to new york with the director they'll hold auditions there they'll see actors uh for various roles um obviously we have equity
1: equity equity? they
12: are they're all equity actors um which is the stage union in this country uh for performers and they uh, almost all in this show there's one exception which is an interesting one i can talk about Um, and then there are also actors who, you know, a couple of folks have been able to make careers based partly in the Berkshires because there are so many theaters in our area there. Um, and they, the level of acting that you see in this, in this theater is amazing. One of the things that happens is people always often said to me when I was running the theater, how do you get such great actors?
1: That's my question.
12: And if I'm a
1: great actor, what is it about Chester Theater? Why do I want to go to... Chester, Massachusetts.
12: Absolutely. Uh, I'd give you three reasons. One, it's actually a beautiful place to be for five weeks in the summer, and if you live in New York, it's a great time to get out of the city. Uh, But also, the short answer I give is we only, we get great actors because we only have great roles. That is to say, we do wonderful plays, contemporary work. The casts are usually, you know, somewhere between about two and five people, which means nobody's got that role where it's like somebody's got to do it, but it's not that exciting we get great actors because we only have great roles, uh, and that's really how it happens. Let me circle
1: back, if I may, circle mirror trans, uh, transformation, and and talk about the fact that it is a local uh, uh, playwright, uh, Annie Baker from Amherst. Um, was Was that because you were seeking local talent or because she happened to be from Amherst writing about a fictional Amherst?
12: Yeah, so I would say it's some of each. I mean, she's very much somebody with a national profile. In fact, she was in the area this past summer shooting a film. A24, the production company, uh, was producing her first movie, and she was in the area all this last summer uh, shooting that film. So she's a pretty big deal. Um, And so I think that there's an interest because of the connection, but I don't think that anybody would consider her a local playwright, right? On the other hand, when we did The Aliens, one of the really fun things that happened was that Annie's mom came out to see the show and brought friends. And although, obviously, her daughter's plays have been done all over the place, they've had big New York productions, she's won big awards, she hadn't had a production where she could say to her friends, hey, let's go see Annie's play and have lunch, right? So that was kind of a cool connection. Um, You know, another wonderful local connection for us, I was saying that this cast is largely equity actress. It's a cast of five Uh, The one exception is a wonderful recent graduate of Smith College, who was a student of mine at Smith, because I also teach in the theater department there, Um, Hero Marguerite, who uh, just finished last year.
1: I'm sorry, what's her first name?
12: Hero, uh, H-E-R-O.
1: I thought that's what you said. Uh,
12: I did. uh, Actually named for the character in Much Ado About Nothing Ah, by her theater parents. There we go. Um, But in any case, one of the characters in the play is a high school student, and she's taken the course— Uh, You know, she's taking this creative drama course because she wants a leg up on auditioning for West Side Story at the high school in the fall. Um, And so we were looking for somebody younger to do that role. And it's been really exciting to have, uh, you know, Hero, whom I've worked with since she started at Smith, who's now graduated, is trying to start a professional career in theater, get to have this first full professional job surrounded by these much more experienced actors.
1: Uh, that, That must feel so good for you, Daniel Kramer.
12: It's a lovely treat, and it's a, it's a wonderful mix for me because the cast includes Tara Franklin, who's one of the artistic directors I mentioned, whom I've worked with a bunch, uh, a couple of other folks who've worked out there a ton, uh, and then also an old Yale Drama School classmate whom I was able to call up and say, hey, Alex, I've got a part that would be amazing. Do you happen to be free for five weeks? And amazingly, he was.
1: So uh, you, Daniel, you, you have made a career of theater. These are difficult times. We, we Dan Dan Torres and I, our producer, were talking about the difficulties of uh, the stresses to democracy um, that we're certainly right now undergoing. Is theater an escape? Is theater a lesson? Is it, uh, what is it about theater that compels you to compel me to go?
12: So I guess what I would say is if I start from where you began, right, what's happening with democracy, right? And I don't have deep political analysis to offer. Other folks know a lot more about this. But what I can say is one of the things that happens is we don't do enough understanding other people's lives. We don't do enough understanding other people's perspectives. Uh, It's easy to be like, well, my experience of the world is real. What are you thinking? What's wrong with you, right? Right. Um, and what theater gives us is this amazing opportunity to feel like we can get inside other people's experiences and other people's lives. And I always feel like there are two magic tricks theater can do, uh, and they're opposite, but they're complementary. One is you come into the theater and you see people and you think, oh, they're just like me. And then you discover they're not the flip side of that is you come into theater and you think, oh, I have nothing in common with those people. And of course you discover that you do right. And. That sense of a kind of engaged, active empathy is so critical, and as I think in many ways what seems to be missing from so many of the, the things that are going on right now for us.
1: What a wonderful place to take a, a break. It gives us a chance to let that percolate, The theater, like empathy, uh, is so important for all of us. We will be right back. With uh, Daniel Elhu Kramer. In the meantime, you can go and get tickets. Circle Mirror Transformation at the Chester Theater. It's Chester Theater, R E at the end of Theater. Dot org. Go and get your tickets. This I know. I'm going to. We'll be right back. <laughs>
0: Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Got chronic
5: joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450.
11: Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not, Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience in a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton.
6: Sidewalk sales, downtown Northampton. Sidewalk
5: sales, walk away with.
12: A new pair of shoes, temporary tattoos. Walk
5: away with a bargain. Sidewalk sales, now in downtown Northampton.
0: A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5, 1400, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: There is so much I love about living in Western Massachusetts and uh we often talk about the fine arts in this region, but the performing arts in this region are uh it's a treasure and um literally there's a trove of treasures in the performing arts arena, none. I have not been there by way of disclosure, and I'm embarrassed, as I've been told I should be, uh, to the Chester Theater. However, there is this um, much talked about, much anticipated Circle Mirror Transfer uh, Transformation is the performance that's going to begin on August 10th and go till August 20th at Chester Theater. You can. Get tickets for it by going to Chester Theater. That's with an R-E at the end of theater. One word, ChesterTheater.org. Um, and there is, this play it has been written by uh, Amerson Annie Baker. And the uh, fictional location of uh, in which the story unfolds is uh, Shirley, Vermont, which is based on um, Annie's understanding of life in Amherst, Massachusetts. We're here with... Um, Daniel Kramer, Daniel Elihu Kramer and Daniel, I, I wanted to, I think Dan, you had a question for Daniel about, um, the audience.
2: Yeah. I just wanted to know what's uh, been happening recently. What's the recent trends? Because a lot of what I'm hearing is people aren't going out as much as they used to. So I'm wondering
12: if this is happening in theater. It definitely is. I mean, if you are a if you're a New York Times reader, you have seen a lot of articles in the last week or two around this very issue, including proposals about what should be happening, including an article that uh, was based on interviews with the directors of 75 regional theaters around the country, uh, and I would say what has happened is that the pandemic, uh, as I think was true in a lot of places, right. Um, Amplified and sped up trends that were already underway, right? Um, that the, the whole infrastructure of how theaters were based uh, in many cases worked off of this idea of a subscription audience, right? You had a bunch of people who committed to your season and then you did the plays you did and they had said, we trust you, we'll come see what you're doing. And so you didn't always have to figure out who's going to come see this play, who's going to come see this next play, who's going to come see this next play. Uh, We were already trending toward a reduction in the kinds of numbers you saw from folks subscribing, the kinds of numbers you saw of folks saying, I'm going to commit to your whole season, right? Um, And a couple of years of being at home uh, did not help that trend. Uh, When we're being honest in theater, we also have to admit that we have not done a great job of getting the next generations to be excited about theater. That's what I I was going to ask you about, because when I go, it's decidedly gray, the audience, and
1: that's alarming because uh, young people, youthful exuberance is part of what makes theater so exciting, right?
12: absolutely and there's nothing more exciting for me than to be in an audience at chester or anywhere at the theater and feel that it's a really multi-generational audience or a really young audience because that feels infrequent uh chester works at one great disadvantage on this front which is that you have to have a car to get there right so nobody can stumble upon it you know i used to keep threatening that the motto of chester theater company ought to be chester theater company 40 beautiful minutes from anywhere right (laughs) Um, it's too bad that train isn't still in effect, right? They're working on that. Uh, they've been working on it a while. We'll see what happens. But it is absolutely the case that audiences are still finding their way back. That And also that we are still trying to figure out how permanently have habits changed over the stretch of time. Are we going to say, oh, that was this little sort of parenthetical period and then we returned? It's looking like that's not going to be the case. And so theaters have a lot to figure out. Chester Theatre Company and so many theatre companies about how do we work in this new environment? How do we work in this new reality? Because, you know, if, Buzz, if you don't mind adding, I mean, there's a lot that goes behind
2: the scenes, right? In terms of paying the actors. And uh, paying the the cost of maintaining the building, the facilities, none of that can be cheap. The sets did, the lighting, the... the sets, the lighting, all the costumes. I mean, when I think about it, usually uh, the actors on stage get all the attention and all the love, right? Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm I'm bad at this, or wrong at this, but I think about it and the complexity of putting that stage together must be a, a challenge, a feat, and not easy to do, right? And you're trying to pay people a living wage. You're talking about all the all the rising in cost of living around here. How, how does a theater manage that complexity?
12: So there's so many. You're absolutely right, first of all, right? There are all of these different things, and some of them feel very visible when you come to a theater, and some of them are absolutely not visible to you, right? Um, and some of it is you're paying union actors and directors and designers, Right. Some of it is where are these people going to live? You have to house them. Right. So the theater owns a couple of houses, just bought another house last year because we discovered we kept being like, where are we going to put people? We can't do this play because we don't have anywhere for the actors to live when they come up. So there's an expense you wouldn't think of. Oh, the theater had to buy another house. (laughs) Right. Um, So there's so much going on. Um, There's a very small year round staff, but you need a year round staff. Um, And what you find is that you're really working from multiple sources of where you're going to get your money as a theater, right? Ticket sales, obviously, and ticket sales themselves come in two forms, as I've been saying, subscribers who commit to a whole season or at least buy a package, right? Say, I'll buy six tickets across the summer and we'll use them for at least a couple of the plays. Um, And you obviously try to encourage people to do that and you give them discounts to make them do that. Uh, Individual ticket sales, individual donors, Grants from private organizations, government support. Massachusetts is pretty good if you are comparing us to a lot of places in this country. This country is terrible if you're comparing us to a lot of other places theater goes on. Mm-hmm. In terms of what kind of support one of the um, there is for theater uh, and arts more broadly, one of the things that was in the Times uh, about a week ago was an opinion piece um, from a wonderful writer who's written a book about method acting, a wonderful history actually, Um, talking about what kind of support it would take to make the difference. During COVID, actually, um, there was some money out there. And theaters got that money, and a lot of them burned through it Mm. and are right back where they were or worse. One of the wonderful things, I will say at Chester, with a lot of help from the board and other folks, we did not burn through it. Mm. So there's some time to figure this stuff out, right? Mm. There's money that came in to support the theater during COVID, uh, and it buys you, honestly, a couple of years to say, how's this going to work?
1: So let me ask you, uh, Daniel Elihu, Kramer, do people have to wear masks? Are people masked?
12: Great question. So there, are, if you want to come to a mass performance, there are two over the course of the run. So the first Thursday matinee, so Thursday matinee that first week, which is August 10th. And then the second so Saturday. Yeah, that's Thursday, right? Yep. And then the second Saturday matinee, which is August 19th, those two performances, masks are required. So if you want to be at a performance where folks will be masked, the actors won't be, but the audience and everybody working there will be. Those are the two. Beyond that, the theater is no longer asking people to mask. People can do as they see fit. You'll always be welcome with a mask on, uh, but it won't be an expectation for the other performances.
2: Wait, I wanted to ask one other question here before we wrap up. Is tease us about what's coming up in the near future of uh, plays? What do you got coming up in the next few months?
12: So um, I'll tease you with two things, actually. One is a play that's just opening at Chester right now. So if you want to see something there before Circle Mirror Transformation, a really terrific play uh, by a playwright from Chicago named Loy Webb, and the play is called The Light, and it is an evening in the life of a couple. Um, who begin thinking that they are talking about, hey, let's go to a concert uh, and end up kind of questioning a million things about their relationship. It's pretty fascinating 90 minutes. Uh, so that's... Only two actors. Two actors, just uh-huh. just the couple. Um, this fall at Smith College, where if you ask him to pitch, I'll tell you that I am directing with Smith students an astonishing play called Dance Nation uh, by a playwright named Claire Barron. It is a play about 11- to 13-year-old competitive dancers but it is written to be played by actors of all ages playing those young dancers and it is a really stunning play and that'll be coming up at the end of october at smith college so keep an eye out for that well uh he is daniel
1: helen uh, kramer it is chester theater theater with org. you can get tickets right now for the current play tell us the name of it again
12: Circle, oh, the current play, The Light. The Light, or
1: Circle Mirror Transformation, which is going to be running from August 10th to August 20th. If you insist on only going out when other people are wearing masks, there will be two performances available for you to go with other colleagues wearing masks. Um, but it is, I just keep hearing about it, Daniel. At the Chester Theater, definitely on my to-do list this summer. And uh, yeah, I'll be, I hope I'll be seeing you when I come out there.
12: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: It is a pleasure. Break a leg. We're going to be right back with the town manager and communications director of Amherst. Speaking of Amherst, Paul Backelman and Brianna Sunrid. right after this.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Massachusetts State Senate passed a $513 million supplemental budget for fiscal year 2023. The legislation funds flexible assistance for farms throughout the Commonwealth, impacted by recent severe weather events. Senator Joe Comerford says she is tremendously grateful the Senate is standing with farmers with $20 million in funding. Senate President Karen Spilka spoke about the need to help farmers.
3: We have a responsibility to support the communities that grow the food,
7: drive the agricultural economy of our state. Cumberford says that the public funds will go out as direct grants. The driver of a car that hit a motorcyclist, killing the driver and injuring the passenger in 2021, pleaded guilty yesterday to a single charge of negligent operation of a motor vehicle. The crash, which took place May 15, 2021, on Route 9 in Belchertown near the Town line, claimed the life of Wales resident Niles Robbins, who was operating a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. A passenger on the motorcycle sustained non-life-threatening injuries. State police investigators later determined that Alexander Sakin of East Longmeadow was at fault for the crash. Sakin was sentenced to three years of probation. And the Route 2 detour around Factory Hollow between Greenfield and Gill has changed paths. The detour has been redirected from Adams Road to the French King Highway onto Silver Street, then back to Route 91 north of the Bernardston exit. The detour will be in place long term after a recent flooding has eroded the land between the section of Route 2. Mostly
8: sunny today, warm and humid, a high of 90 to 94, a heat advisory in effect today. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temps in the 80s, an overnight low of 66 to 72. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms likely, a high of 84 to 88. Mostly sunny, low humidity, and a high in the low 80s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
0: Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time Monday through Friday right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP
5: Winesick Nursery has had roots in the Valley since 1954. They would like to thank you for your loyalty and dedication to gardening. You kept Winesick's growing through the years. They're pleased to bring you another season of annuals, perennials, flowering trees, fruit trees, and shrubs. They're here if you need soil, mulch, or compost, and welcome you to their showroom and retail yard. Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954 on Route 9 in Hadley and at WineSickNursery.com. Saga Communications of New England is looking for an IT administrator to work in a fast-paced and challenging work environment. This position requires a strong self-starter with the ability to quickly learn new processes. You're a team player that can take ownership of local IT operations and contribute to a team of IT engineers. You must possess the ability to juggle and prioritize work while supporting numerous employees in three locations in Western Mass. There will be regular travel to Springfield, Northampton, and Greenfield. Flexibility is the key to success. The ideal candidate will be somebody who has an interest in the broadcast radio industry and knowledge of lan and wan support you should understand windows active directory networks router and firewall functions and have experience with desktop support of office 365 and utilizing a help desk environment supporting users in multiple locations and yes you'll receive great benefits please send your cover letter and resume to itjobs at springfieldrocks.com saga communications of new england is an equal opportunity employer
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: Uh, For those who were joining us before the break, you heard about um, uh, playwright Annie Baker's uh, looking for the Circle Mirror Transformation, which is based on a fictional town in Shirley, Vermont, based on her childhood experience in a town that isn't fictional called Amherst, Massachusetts. She creates a university in that, uh, and, and she sort of replicates Amherst, but uh, we don't have to replicate Amherst because we are here with both town manager, Paul Buckland and Brianna Sunrid, the director of communications of Amherst, Massachusetts, and we have our own producer, Dan Torres from Amherst, Massachusetts, here to talk all things Amherst. Welcome, Brianna and Paul. Great. Thanks for having us. Oh, it is a real pleasure, and I'm so glad to have you back in the studio to talk about Amherst, the uh, center of the universe in the <laughs> valley.
3: We like to
1: think so. Yeah, like to think so. So um, I was I was gonna start with asking you what's hot in Amherst, except I think the answer is
11: everything, right, Paul? It's hot outside. We just walked in, boy, it's boiling. we to talk about what we're doing, Bree?
3: Yeah, so we we have very hot temperatures the last few days and going into the weekend, so we've been sharing out ways to beat the heat. Uh, We've got a cooling center open at our community center, Banks Community Center, that will be open today through 4 o'clock. And we've made our pools free. Um, Our two swimming pools, community pools, will be free today.
1: Are they being used?
3: They are being used. Um, We're inviting everybody down in the community. They can swim for free within the hours that they're open. Um, Just keep in mind that we might have to put time limits on it depending on demand. But they are being used, especially with our pond, Puffers Pond, being closed right now for swimming. So we're ha- having everybody head over to our pools.
1: I, I guess this is a question for medical folks, but have there been some people who have, as a result of the heat, been in distress, uh, uh, not uncomfortable, but in medical distress?
11: Paul? We have not had many, actually. Um, and that's one of the metrics that we lose, use when we look about opening cooling centers and things like that. Uh, the Our fire chief is also our emergency management director, and he looks. I asked him, "When do you want to open a cooling center?" And he has a number of things. Temperature over ninety degrees is one of them, and then, but it's also the humidity that plays into it. It's and the perceived need, uh, and based on medical calls that they monitor. So there hasn't been a lot at this point in time, but we're on on like day two or three of this heat wave. So it depends how long it lasts. It's the longer it lasts, the bigger it is. Since we're talking about heat. I also wanted to know about the recent floods that have been
2: happening in this area. Quite a few mayors and and state reps have been on these radio talking about the damages to farms and other areas. Can you tell us what's going on in Amherst? And I just
1: want to point out, yesterday we had on the a new state fire marshal, who's the uh, <laughs> former uh, current, I guess, until uh, noon today. The fire chief here in Northampton, John Davin, and he too was really concerned about uh, about that.
11: Yeah. Well, first. Congrats to Chief Davin. That's a great selection um, as the new state fire marshal. And he, I think the, the fact that he's from Western Mass is significant for us. You know, oddly and fortunately, Amherst hasn't been hit as hard as the other communities on this side of the river and up, you know, going up into Deerfield. Um, we have not had that significant flooding that other people have had, and our farms haven't been as washed out. So we really don't have the damage. Um, and Partially, I think it's because the soils aren't as rich in some ways as compared, but also we just haven't had the the flooding that everybody else has had.
1: Yeah. Uh, why, what do you mean the soils aren't as rich? I don't understand. So, you know,
11: in uh, if you look in Hadley, there are a lot of farms, right? And, and in Amherst, there aren't many farms. There's, they, people, you know, hundreds of years ago were raising uh, cattle and sheep because the soils just weren't very good, as good for grazing, but not good for farming. And then if you look around Amherst, you don't see a lot. You see far, farms raising um, hay and things like that, but not real crops that much.
1: Yeah. And one of the concerns, which I just keep uh, parroting, it seems like I'm a broken record, but um, the, when we have a drought, then this year's crop is destroyed. Yeah. When we have this kind of a deluge, the topsoil is taken from us. It has years of... Of damage that we're talking about, but um, I'm glad in Amherst. I mean, you did have a huge fire, which some people are talking. It was a lightning strike uh, and the mm-hmm. that on the dryness. It was terrible in the J and J farm.
11: Yeah, how are they doing? Uh, it was the oldest dairy farm in Amherst. Um, that's a real tragedy. It was a loss. The community came together to try and help, but insurance never covers the loss. Um, the um, the the older gentleman, who was the farmer there, really took it very um, as a challenging situation for the entire family. So, um, I did hear that the farming community really has come together to
1: support the needs of th- that family.
11: They did, and I was up there for a part of it, and you know, there were farmers coming from all over the place to to relocate the cows. no 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 cows were lost. Uh, you know, no nobody was hurt. Um, but there's significant damage to all the structures. But, yeah, the, the farming community was phenomenal in helping out each other.
2: Yeah. Go ahead, Dan.
11: Oh, wait. Oh, I had another question
2: unrelated to this. but
1: Well, and let me just follow that because I think that that's a good segue for what we did want to talk about, which is fortunately the housing wasn't damaged. It was the barns that were damaged in that in that fire. But housing has been in the news for Amherst. Housing density, housing affordability, Housing availability for people. So, um, what is Amherst doing about it? I think there's some zoning proposals. Yeah.
11: So, um, the, the town does a lot for housing on many different levels. You know, we're we're there's a lot of construction going on in town, and mostly about apartments. Uh, every apartment complex typically has affordable housing units as part of it. Uh, the other tool is to change zoning to uh, increase density. That uh, proposal, the most recent one about duplexes and triplexes, has been withdrawn by the council sponsors uh, this week. So they want to sort of go back, start having the conversation with the um, planning board and talk about how can these changes be made to densify existing house lots. and it was, it was sort of a, a very large package that people had a hard time digesting. And people liked certain portions of it, but they didn't, as a package, it, was, it was, seemed like it wasn't going to fly. So they were going back and like, let's have this conversation piece by piece. Um, so creating more density, especially in our village centers, um, is what, what our priority is as part of our master plan.
1: Well, let me ask you, Communications Director, Brianna Sunrise, Amherst is an odd community. The population, <laughs> uh, I didn't mean that in a, in a pejorative way. But it's okay, I live there, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the population swells, you know, because of the student population during when, when school's in session. Um, for those two semesters, you have tens of thousands of people. And what's the population when those students aren't here in Amherst?
3: Probably roughly half of the, the number. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so when it comes to housing, uh, some students are going to be in those high-rise dormitories and other dormitories on the university campus, but some students are going to be looking for apartments and houses to rent. Um, isn't that, doesn't it make it harder to figure out what affordable housing should be, how many units you do need? There's a flexibility to that,
3: right? It, it definitely presents a challenge and an opportunity. We we permit our rental housing, so we get a lot of good information Um about how many units are out there, what types of properties are being used for rentals. So we have a, a lot of data available to us um, when we kind of look at that bigger picture, part of the master plan process that Paul's talking about.
1: But in terms of the kind of planning that Paul's talking about, you're talking about private uh, private people who own housing, who own houses, want to rent a room in the back of their house, etc. It's a harder thing for you to have control over As a
11: public government, right?
3: It certainly is, yeah.
11: Yeah, and I think part of it is just one of the strategies is to increase the supply. It's a supply and demand situation. Um, You know, as the university has grown, they are building new dormitories, the public-private partnership on Mass Ave at the university. Those two new dormitories are about to open under private management. Um, But what do you, Paul
1: Bachman, have to do with that? Do you... Actually, have say in it uh, in what they're no. Going it's to it's
11: the, they're they're a, they're a, a, a government unto themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they we encourage them to to create additional housing all the time and replace the housing that they've taken offline. But the market does influence what's happening in our neighborhoods, and that's the thing that's having the greatest impact. When developers are coming in or investors are buying single family houses and just renting them out for significant money, it's a it's a it's corporations doing it now. And we're trying to figure out ways to address that. This is Dan. I wanted you to discuss the recent uh,
2: agreement made with UMass Amherst Mm -hmm. and what is called Pilots Program, the payments in lieu of taxes. It seems to me when I talk to residents at Amherst, there's always something to complain about, of course. But one of them is that, uh, you know, UMass and Amherst College own a lot of land and they're nonprofits and, you know, they don't pay uh taxes tax exempt uh, organizations they're tax exempt organizations so mm-hmm. uh, that's made up uh, of you know in residential and I guess commercial taxes and
11: uh, can you do, talk about the agreement and what should we expect in the future Yeah, before the chancellor left office, we were able to come to uh, an agreement for the uh, strategic partnership agreement between the university and the town that provides over $5 million over the next five years. um, With one year, we're already in year two of that agreement. So that's a really, we think it's a pretty solid agreement. It includes significant funds, $700,000 a year. To help support our fire and EMS services, which is a big—that's the biggest uh, service that we provide to the university. What is the budget
1: for overall budget for the uh, fire and emergency services? Do you know?
11: Oh, probably about twelve million dollars. Twelve million. So we're yeah. talking
1: about seven hundred thousand out of yeah. twelve million. And
11: they also agreed to buy an ambulance for the town uh, in this fiscal year. So those are those are significant. Um, There are a number of other things they provide $200,000 a year to our school district because there are students who live in university-owned housing and that's an agreement that we did a study on and that's that's tied to that. Um, There are a number of other initiatives that we have with the university. I think it's a pretty solid and people have been pretty receptive to that that agreement. The second agreement is with Amherst College. Now it's a private nonprofit. Uh, The the agreement we have with um, the university is not a pilot. It's not a payment in lieu of taxes. It's for services more and the, the types of things that we think they should be supporting. The things with Amherst College that we're having the conversations about is about the shared values that we have, about sustainability, about economic development, about racial equity, and how can we work together. And, you know, they have, ans- they have ample assets compared to a state agency. So we're hoping to have that. The, the new president has been very open to that conversation we're moving forward on that.
1: Well, I, I was just uh, looking at this morning, looking at this uh, guest column. It was from, uh, I think about a week ago by John Varner, who was just saying that that deal is a good start. Mm-hmm. He feels like it's woefully inadequate in terms of um, what would be fair to the town of Amherst? What the expectations and demands are by the university and Amherst College from the town, and that um, it should be there should be more money um, coming to the town from these entities. So What say you, Brianna?
2: Oh, 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 although, can I just quickly add something to that? I'm I'm sure if a UMass official was here in the studio. They would counter in some of these claims, and they would claim, "Hey, the students also bring in a lot of money to the Mm -hmm. town, right?" And so I'm sure
11: you're you're hearing that argument as well. I don't know if you want to answer some of that. Well, I mean, I'll jump in here. We would like more money too. We were negotiating. We, we, this is not. We didn't come in say and say this is the number. You know, it's a it's a give and take with any negotiation, and that's how we got to this agreement on on shared number that we that we think uh, addressed our needs to a certain extent in what the university could afford at this moment in time. So I don't disagree with Mr. Varner, but um, and we're always going to be seeking more money, always, uh, from our from our partners. Did, did Dan uh, just
1: uh, amplify the university's position, which is look at what our students bring to the business community in Amherst? You're an alum?
3: <laughs> yes, I am an alum, a double alum, and I do think that the university brings a lot to the table when it comes to the town, and it's a, it's a reason why people come here for many reasons. I came here for undergrad in, uh, in the early 2000s, and here I am, I haven't left. So there's, there's something about both sides, and I, I think that it is a major fabric of our town is, is the university and the colleges. So there's definitely something to be said for that.
1: Right, but I would think that uh, uh, police services... Public safety services in general, fire services, they're much greater because of the uh, university and Amherst College um, student population, which is a young population, tends to require more in the way of public safety, I think, right? Yeah,
11: to a certain extent. I mean, both the college and the university have their own police forces. They do not have their own fire or EMS services, and that's, that's where we, and mm-hmm. the Hampshire College as well, we, we, we respond to all of those calls. And we, and we document them all. We are talking to
1: Amherst Town manager, Paul Bachman. We are also talking to uh, the uh, communications director, Brianna Sunridge. We're going to take a break. We're going to come. I love talking about Amherst. <laughs> and by way of disclosure, I too am a 70s <laughs> alum. We'll be right back. Money. Get
0: This is Talk The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley.
6: It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives, 101.5 and 1400, WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Our beloved Local
4: Hero Farms. Way too much rain, wiping out crops, wiping out entire farms. Our Local Hero Farms matter too much to let them go down. We're all together on a rescue mission. Go to the Help Flooded Farms page at the CESA Local Hero website. Support a specific farm or donate to CESA's Emergency Farm Fund. Local Hero Farms, think what life would be like without them. Go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org, to the Help Flooded Farms page and kick in what you can.
6: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
4: Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese
0: salad.
6: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
0: Do you use home oxygen? Do you know about the increased risk of fires and burns? No one should smoke in your home. There's more oxygen in the air, which makes fires burn faster and hotter. Furniture, clothes, bedding, and hair absorb oxygen and can catch fire more easily. Keep 10 feet away from any flame or heat source. For more information, call 1-877-9-NO-FIRE or go to mass.gov DFS. Breathe easy and use your home oxygen safely. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: I love talking with Town Manager Paul Bachman and Director of Communication Brianna Sunreed about Amherst because it, it really is. It's an anchor. Whatever community you live in in this region, it is an anchor of, of that and the uh, big fan of education. And uh, Amherst provides such a wonderful forum for education, but there are practicalities in running a town, and roads are one of them. Our producer, Dan Torres. Have I
2: complained about them on the air? On the air,
1: he's complaining about the potholes even a couple years ago. So talk to us, Paul Bachman, about the roads in Amherst.
11: Roads in Amherst are, we've been challenged to keep them up. I think every community has been uh, we have increased our investment in roads um, from when I started in 2016, from 50 thousand a year to last year 1.8 million dollars a year. Um, we've invested in sidewalks from 30 thousand dollars a year to last year 300 thousand dollars a year.
1: Are the roads paved with gold? I mean, no. But here,
11: here's the story: is that you know when I started, we were getting 958 thousand dollars a year from the state. Uh, last year, we got a million dollars from the state. That's virtually no change. So that's the big difference maker, the state, you know, we're all paying taxes off of the gas tax that the state is collecting the that and it's not coming back to the cities and towns and that's where we need it. H- has the investments in roads, uh,
2: dec- I guess, is the need for road repair increased substantially in, in recent years? Is that why there's such a big gap? Because it feels like the road conditions are
11: worsening every winter. They do because, uh, and many of the conditions of the roads are um, based on moisture. If there's a, if if you don't maintain your roads, moisture gets in. It, it's the freeze and thaw, and then that breaks up the roads. Mm. And so. Um, in terms of getting roads done, we have about a $40 million backlog. We survey the roads every few years. We have a company come in, and they look drive up and down every road. And then they give us a number, and that number is very high. And we're trying to get, do everything we can to put as many dollars as we can. Our main roads are okay. We, we've started by investing most of the money into our main roads. It's a lot of the side roads that are really in bad shape.
1: Yeah, and, and Amherst is a destination place. I am not an Amherst resident, but I'm always coming in to go to the cinema or, or whatever. So there's a whole lot of use of the roadways other than mm-hmm. just by Amherst uh, uh, citizens. We don't have much time, but I want to. What events can we look forward to in happening in Amherst that we should know about?
3: Well, we have, we have a big one coming up on August twelfth, which is a Saturday at Mill River Recreation Area. It's Community Safety Day, so you're get to meet your community responders, uh, EMTs, fire, paramedics, police. uh, Of course, Crest has been in the news. Uh, Mm -hmm. Crest has been in the news. And so you'll get to meet kind of the bigger picture of what we deem as our public safety professionals in Amherst. Fun family day, trucks, exhibits, food. So that's coming up on August 12th from 10 to 2 at Mill River.
1: And if people want to find out more about it, how can they find out more about it?
3: They can go to our website right on the homepage, amherstma.gov.
1: That's really great. Um, and I really wanted to talk about reparations. We
11: hardly have enough time.
1: Can you give us a one-minute sure. synopsis?
11: So they intes- anticipate having their report to the town council by mid-August, um, and that's, that will begin the conversation at the council level about what the funding should look like. We've already set up the funding sources for reparations. It's now about how you going to allocate those funds. And that's a very complicated conversation.
1: Yeah, and as town manager, how involved are you in that conversation? It's
11: really the—there is an African Heritage Reparation Assembly that's been doing the hard work on this. And it's, 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 it's really um, uh, leading the pack in terms of this, the country. There aren't many communities having this conversation, but it's, it's an important one.
1: Northampton is having this community they are. conversation. They are.
11: And we've talked to,
1: uh, in Black of the Valley segment, which we have every week, Uh, Amakar Shabazz has been Mm -hmm. talking about uh, uh, what's happening, and we're all riveted. We all understand the importance of reparations, and we all admire that Amherst is trying to figure out how to do something. Dr. Shabazz is on that that assembly and is a real thought leader on it as well. Well, Paul Bachman, you're going to regret that you ever mentioned that, because this means you have to come back in August (laughs) and give us another update. Brianna Sunrid, communications director, and... Town Manager Paul Bachman, thank you so much for joining us. It really is uh, important for us to hear from you about our, uh, for those of us who don't live in Amherst, our our neighbor, our beloved town of Amherst, Massachusetts. We appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having us.
1: Everybody else, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, Have a great weekend. Uh, Remember, we don't just talk the talk. We all try to walk the walk.
0: Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from eight till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? It's Polka Carousel every Sunday morning from eight till noon on 101.5, 1400 WHMP.
6: Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., or visit Safe Passage